0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Jonathan Cortes, the producer and host of today's episode. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Ana Ramos-Zayas and Dr. Merida Rua about their new edited anthology, Critical Dialogues in Latinx Studies, A Reader, published by New York, new York University Press in 2021, Uh, and briefly mentioning that I saw you all speak about the anthology uh, a few months ago at the New England Consortium for Latina and Latino Studies, and I hope that this is in some ways a continuation of that conversation. Um, But before we get into the book, I'll do a quick introduction of our guests. Ana Huayra Mosayas is the Frederick Clifford Ford Professor and Chair in Ethnicity, Race, and Migration, She is also part of the American Studies Program and Department of Anthropology at Yale University. She is a member of the Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies Executive Council, the Center for Race, Indigeneity, and Transnational Migration, and the Educational Studies Program. Ramos Zayas received a BA in Economics and Latin American Studies from Yale College, an MA and PhD in Anthropology from Columbia University, and a postdoctoral fellowship in Anthropology and Evaluation Research from Harvard University. She's the author of three manuscripts. First, National Performances, Class, Race, and Space in Puerto Rican Chicago. Second, Street Therapists, Affect, Race, and Neoliberal Personhood in Latino Newark. And third, Parenting Empires, Class, Whiteness, and the Moral Economy of Privileges in Latin America. She is co-author with Nicolás de Genova of Latino Crossings, Mexicans, Puerto Ricans, and the Politics of Race and Citizenship. At Yale, Ramos Sayas teaches graduate and undergraduate courses in Latin American Studies, Critical Race Theory, Citizenship, Transnationalism, Migration, and Anthropology of Emotion and Affect, and Ethnography and Fieldwork Methods. Ramos Sayas grew up in Santurces, Puerto Rico, and currently lives in Harlem with her partner, their 12-year-old son, Sebastian and a 14-year-old dog named Mavi. 14-year-old dog, wow. Um, And she looks like a puppy. Oh, oh, precious. Uh, And we also, the co-editor, we have Dr. Merida M. Rua, a faculty member in the Latina and Latino Studies Program at Northwestern University. Dr. Rua is an interdisciplinary scholar whose research and teaching focus on the history and politics of communities of color in U.S. cities. She's the author of A Grounded Identidad, Making New Lives in in Chicago's Puerto Rican Neighborhoods by Oxford University Press in 2012, and co-editor of Latino Urban Ethnography and the Work of Elena Padilla by the University of Illinois Press in 2010. Rua's current book project, Migrations to Elderhood, chronicles the intricate and multifaceted lives of older adult Puerto Ricans. Based on four years of qualitative research, including 60 interviews and ethnographic fieldwork, plus analysis of literary, visual, and performance cultures, it offers interdisciplinary insight into how this population talks about and makes meaning of their experiences and sociospatial environments as they grow old. Related to this work, Rua and Katinka M. Martinez from San Francisco State University co-edited a special issue of the journal Latino Studies on the art of Latina and Latino elderhood, published in December 2021, which was really a fantastic issue. Merida, congratulations. Um, Merida and Nana, thank you so much for both of you for being with us today. And welcome to New Books in Latino Studies.
3: Thank you so much, Jonathan, for the invitation. This is great to be able to share with you and also with my co-editor. And I look forward to the conversation.
1: Yes, I wanted to say the same thing. Thank you so much. And for just uh, being tenacious and making sure that this happened, given all of the the kind of delays (laughs) with it. So, yes, uh, looking forward to the conversation as well.
0: Thank you all so much. I really appreciate that. So I want to start off with with biographies to to dig a little bit deeper into how um, really your educational biographies have influenced um, your own work and and even critical dialogues in Latinx studies. On page six of the reader, um, you two write, quote, as a Puerto Rican from Chicago and a Puerto Rican from Puerto Rico, and as co-editors, our personal biographies, professional experiences and community connections shaped the very impetus to organize this project as collaborative critical dialogues rather than as a more conventional thematic anthology. So can you each tell us a bit more about yourselves, about your background, about how your background influences the work you now engage, um, where you attended college and graduate school, any mentors or, or, or authors that you were inspired by and essentially how you come to arrive at Latinx Studies, Anna, can you start us off?
3: Sure. Uh, those are a lot of great questions. Um, I'll try to um, address them as much as I can. Uh, but I just wanted to first point out that um, indicative of Latinx studies is probably how Merida and I got to meet. Uh, we did not meet in an officially officially in an academic setting. We actually met um, at a community organization in Chicago. Uh, while I was doing my field work and Merida was applying to grad school at the time, I believe, or she was starting grad school at the time. Um, and I think that part of what that suggests to me is that there are different kinds of spaces that we need to be grateful for when uh, we talk about Latinx scholarship. And not all of Latinx scholarship really um, happens or even collaborations happen in the traditional university settings. Um, In my case, I started in a very traditional program in anthropology. I mean, I had gone from um, majoring in economics to a traditional program in anthropology at Columbia. And I remember that even at that time, it felt like uh, for me to be able to do everything that I wanted to do um, in terms of scholarship, I needed to reach beyond the disciplinary So a lot of the work that I did, even in terms of my own uh, dissertation, was very much situated in Latinx studies, specifically Puerto Rican studies, even though at the time I may not have necessarily um, situated it in that way. Um, So at Columbia, I had many wonderful um, mentors that helped with the the professionalization aspect. But I did not have as many uh, interlocutors in terms of the actual academic piece or the scholarly piece, and so that I started developing uh, when I went to do fieldwork. I mean, as part of the anthropology program, um, you have to do fieldwork. That's part of what you know, the ethnographic piece. And my first experience with my own fieldwork happened in Chicago, where Merida's from. And so in this specific context, I tried to expand both what I viewed as Puerto Rican studies, as well as what I viewed as points of academic and intellectual um, creativity and collaboration. So it started there. And um, after this, I never went back to a full anthropology um, focus in any of my work. So from the very beginning, even from my first book, I've always felt that I've been situated very much in Latinx studies, Puerto Rican studies. And sure, I mean, methodologically, I still go with um, a more ethnographic approach, um, which is what I retain from anthropology. And that is also reflected in my, in my professions. I mean, every time, like from the very beginning when I started at Rutgers, um, I was member of both anthropology and Latino and Caribbean studies departments. Um, And I continued like that throughout, even to this point, you know, even though I'm still affiliated with anthropology, I'm really more centered in ethnicity, race, and migration. So that is just um, some of what I feel. And of course, you know, just like meeting Merida in the very beginning made such a huge difference in my own understanding of the field and what needed to be researched and, you know, identifying important moments and important spaces. I've also grown the Number of people that I've worked with and that I have met um, through Latinx studies organizations and um, and just informally. So I'm really appreciative to have that as my intellectual center. Um, And even though I still attend, you know, more traditional anthropology uh, conferences and activities, I really, my heart and my, I think, my main interests, even to this day, are more interdisciplinary. So I think that's a little bit of how I got. To the kind of work that i do um other than that i mean thematically they have ranged but um i have mostly been interested in inequality whether it is racial inequality or class inequality uh, and recent work uh interests are on the super wealthy so i'm just like i've shifted quite a bit but i'm just really convinced that inequality is driven by the very wealthy so i i'm just trying to understand that area, since I don't have any personal (laughs) understanding of it, I just want to, like, anyway, so, so yeah, so that's, I think that's about, I I hope that I'm touching all the questions that you, that you ask, but.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, Yeah, so, so as Anna was saying, I'm actually born and raised in Chicago, and so the focus of my research in terms of its place baseness is Chicago. Um, I went to, uh, and so, yeah, the questions that I asked, so my interest, for example, in segregation, my interest in terms of community collaborations and solidarities are all very much framed from experiences growing up in Chicago. Uh, I was, I became interested in then studying Puerto Ricans in Chicago and Latinas and Latinos more generally um, because of the fact that, it, you know, I was raised in a neighborhood that, while predominantly Puerto Rican, it wasn't ever only Puerto Rican, right? And so most of the scholarship that I had read never really accounted for that. Um, during when, the time when I first started, so much of the work around Puerto Ricans was very New York City based. Uh, we can no longer say that, you know, that Chicago isn't accounted for because there has been uh, just wonderful research that's come out. Ana's book, for example, Gina Perez's book is another one um, that were foundational to me being able to do my own graduate work at the University of Michigan, where I came out of the American Cultures program. So I'm actually a product also of, uh, interdisciplinary, scholar, of interdisciplinary studies. Um, what I was doing a little bit differently at that time is, I, um, American studies, American cultures, traditionally had always been the kind of blending uh, and combining of history and literature the kind of work I was doing was actually trying to think about the humanities and the social sciences. Um, And really the base of it was ethnographic, but then also taking a historical approach. So that was where I think my work was a little bit different from what was happening at the time. Since then, there's been amazing people doing work at at those intersections. But really um, in terms of the work around urban studies in in American studies, uh, I had few people to talk to other than folks that were actually coming out of disciplines that were also pushing the boundaries of their discipline. So as, as I said before, Ana and someone like Gina Perez, uh, in terms of um, my ability to be able to do this work, it was only through mentorship. So from undergrad at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, I was actually mentored by a graduate student at the time, Arlene Torres, who's now at uh, Hunter College. I also think about my mentor, my main mentor at Michigan was Frances Aparicio. And I was very lucky in terms of my first job to have another excellent mentor in Carmen Whalen. Uh, One of the things that I want to point out is that those are three Puerto Rican women, uh, which is so rare, right? Um, And that that I was able to kind of learn and gain so much knowledge from them. um, And just the experiences that they were able to kind of impart um, really helped me through the process of trying to figure out graduate school, getting, you know, getting through the dissertation and actually that first job. But aside from them, I also want to mention the kind of horizontal mentoring that was happening, right? And that was really important to me. So for example, the fact that I met Anna when she was also a graduate student doing her research, and and we stayed connected. And so she was always kind of cheering me on as I was trying to get through Michigan. I think about Lorena Garcia, who's, uh, who's someone that I had worked with also, um, and, and co edited co-wrote something with. Uh, she's another person that we started graduate school together and we kind of cheered each other on. And she's a sociologist that does work on Latina sexuality. Um, I think about Mari Castaneda at the University of, of, of Amherst, who's also been an, ex- an ex- exemplary collaborator in the work that we did there. Um, with the New England Consortium of Latino Studies. And we did that work also with Alberto um, Sandoval Sanchez. Um, And then finally, the one person that I do want to mention, who was a mentor based on the scholarship, and then actually I got to meet in person with someone like Elena Padilla, who was a Puerto Rican anthropologist who did the very first study of Puerto Ricans in Chicago in the 1940s um, as her master's thesis. And so that was the book that you, the edited book that you mentioned um, earlier today. So for me, they were, you know, when I think about my ability to have been able to kind of think about this profession, my ability to think about the kind of scholarship that I was able to do, it was the fact that I had these interlocutors, that I also had actual scholarship that I could be in conversation with, right? Mm-hmm. And so you start to see some of the shifts in terms of what Anna started with and where you see where I, where I ended up a couple of years later.
0: Yeah, thank thank you so much, that. That's exactly what I was thinking about. Is this 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 long term trajectory of specifically um, feminist Latinx studies scholars in academia, and and like you said, right where somewhere like like Ana started, and like where you like there was just this growing community, right? That is that has led really to something like critical dialogues in Latinx studies to be um, available, to be needed, to be wanted. Um, and to be produced. And so getting into the book now, I'm curious to hear, and I'm sure the listeners, listeners are eager to hear, is how critical dialogues in Latinx studies happened. Uh, can you talk about the development of the edited volume, how it came about, and why was now the right time for this kind of, of anthology, for this kind of reader? Uh, Merida, can you, can you talk to us?
1: Sure. Uh, I, I actually want to kind of punt this one a little bit to Anna, only because she invited me to take uh, part okay. in this, and so so she was the one that was approached by NYU Press and then uh, brought me on board. So Anna, if you want to take it over, sure. And it was
3: it was this kind of situation of. I'll do it if Merida does it. Um, so I was approached by NYU probably a year before I actually said yes. Um, I think they might have approached other people about it and everybody's very busy and, um, and eventually the, at this, you know, I, initially I, I said, well, I don't know. And, you know, NYU was very, uh, persistent in the right way. And, uh, I decided, you know what, this could be, it needs to be fun. It needs to be enjoyable. And I think that that's some of the privilege that happens with being in this for a long time, that you are able to choose what you do in a way. Um, So I remember thinking, you know, Merida and I haven't collaborated in something in a while. I mean, the last time that I could remember, we were in a panel either at LASA or PRSA, or, you know, we used to do all these panels and it was so much fun Mm -hmm. and, and all of that. And I thought, you know, maybe this is like a great way um, to have the excuse to have to connect and connect for in an ongoing basis. So that's when I brought up the idea to the NYU editor, and she was super receptive about it. Um, and so, and Merida immediately said yes, and I so appreciated uh, the process. And And we really, it's, incredible, but it was just easy. At least I found that it it flowed, it flowed um, in a very easy, um, enjoyable, smooth way. Uh, We had very many, like many of the similar views in terms of who we wanted to have on board. And we really wanted a range of people, not, you know, people who taught at community colleges, as well as people who taught at elite places, people who were disciplinary, people who were interdisciplinary, people who uh, were graduate students and senior faculty. So we really, or even emeritus faculty. um, So we wanted really to have a broad representation of what the field was. Uh, There had been other anthologies before, but for the most part, Latinx um, anthologies with a few exceptions, are more in the humanities. And we wanted to make sure that the social sciences were uh, well represented. So um, we were really given um, a lot of flexibility by NYU. They never intervened in the creative piece of this. So um, so yeah, so that's how it started. And um, And once we had that piece done and the contract signed and our, all of that, we started reaching out to... Our collaborators um, with the project, and very early on people were really excited about it, very much on board. And there were specific key topics that we definitely wanted to make sure that we included. We wanted to give more more space and higher profile, not only to the groups that have been at the sort of at the forefront in a way of Latin, of Latinx studies, which were Puerto Ricans and Chicanos but also uh, Central Americans and also other uh, populations that generally have been more um, marginal or, or you know not as well attended to in Latinx studies. So that was something that we thought about in addition to doing the social science angle. Um, and Merida came up with the idea of, org- of how to organize this and organizing it around the critical dialogue piece. And that was both a scholarly and a pedagogical uh, decision. Um, You know, it was scholarly because we felt that we could put different kinds of people doing completely or what seems to be completely unrelated work. We could put them in conversation with one another. And at the same time, we would be separating them in a way that if you wanted to teach part of this in a classroom or one week in the classroom, you could do that without having, you know, just you could just teachers or in in the classroom, you could um, play with that. So yeah, and Merida probably has other things that I'm forgetting, but that's what the basis of what I what I remember from that experience.
1: And and that was really, um, our decision was to bring together these conversations so that we wouldn't have just a chapter on race, a chapter on class, a chapter on gender, when in fact, right, we talk about intersectionality, but then, you know, we still kind of separate these things out. And so when we were coming up with a, uh, a more thematic, conversational, something that could generate discussion, we thought, okay, what would happen if we had instead something that dealt with issues of relatedness and a way to think about, you know, other kinds of family structures and connections that people make, and that within that, you will find a chapter that might centrally focused race, right? You might find another chapter that thinks about sexuality in class. You might have another chapter that's really thinking about kind of diasporic connections, right? But read on the whole, it gives us a different way to kind of enter that conversation about relatedness. And so for us, that became really exciting because it was a way to think about how do we bring together a scholarship that maybe people wouldn't read unless if they were specifically kind of focused on one thing. And so that they have an opportunity to read people that are approaching a theme from different vantage points. And at the same time, you know, what does that do then to our conversations and the ways that we shift how we think about what we call Latinx studies?
0: Yeah. And I think on page eight of the reader, there's a quote that you all write and I'll I'll read it for the, for the listeners. It says, um that really sums up very nicely what what you what you both are saying it says our goal is to reinvigorate intersectional international critical and comparative dimensions of Latinx studies by providing alternative terms frameworks and paradigms for the debate we shift the questions but also the very sites of inquiry and i think that is exactly what we get as readers from from the text and we'll talk about it more as we go through as we go through through the different dialogues but I think I think I think um, mission accomplished (laughs) is what I would say I think it's it's very generative and then at least how it got me thinking, Um, but I did want to bring us back to the beginning of the book, because you all ground us in the literature and epistemological work of Puerto Rican author Jesus Colón, and his book a Puerto Rican in New York and other sketches. I'm really interested to hear more about how and why Colón's work is so important in grounding this edited collection and how you two envision the form of of sketch along with what anthropologist Ruth Behar terms blurred genres as important for informing critical dialogues in Latinx studies.
3: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, I wanted to say related to that, but like also taking it, in a slightly different way. Uh, The the issue of sketch, um, what got us thinking was about how Latinx studies needs to be decoupled from the US as a nation state. And we have talked about transnationalism, we've talked about globalization, about boundary crossing, but in reality, we haven't done that much of that with Latinx studies. How does Latinx studies and Latin American studies nourish and feed off of each other and i think that the image of the sketch as well just as it served for jesus colón's own understanding as a puerto rican labor work labor organizer intellectual uh just as it met that need of like interjection interjecting many different uh, traditions from latin america the caribbean u.s latinx communities we were also trying to do that and we're trying to sort of expand Latinx studies beyond this US centeredness. Um, And many of us have done research that involves Latin America as well. And that doesn't mean that when we do research in Latin America, we are forgetting the paradigms of Latinx studies. It's actually the opposite. I mean, we oftentimes are inspired by those paradigms. And they help us provide lenses and understand phenomena that may not be that generally we associate with the U.S., but it's not uniquely U.S. based. And so um, so that to me was what that quote signified. Um, and, you know, maybe can probably tell you more about it, but like I just wanted to make sure that like that intersection between Latinx studies and Latin American studies done well, not done from an area studies perspective, but more thematically and grounded in specific politics and histories um, are
1: central. Mm-hmm. I, I just also feel that Jesus Colon's book spoke so much to how we envision this project, but also to who we are, right? So you kind of opened your introduction of us talking about how uh, we we wrote something about being a, a Puerto Rican from Chicago and a Puerto Rican from Puerto Rico. And that very much was a, a calling, calling forth to Jesus Colon. And the fact that, you know, this book if you just read the title you think it's only about a puerto rican in new york right but what he uses he uses that that standpoint of being a puerto rican from new york in order to really think about what was actually happening in the community but also what was happening in the world at that time really the hemisphere for in the the world i'm not gonna he does do the hemisphere and the world uh but for him to understand what it meant to be puerto rican in the context of fascism what it meant to be Puerto Rican in the context of understanding himself as a colonial subject, right? The the relationship between Puerto Rico and the United States and thinking about um, kind of the work uh, around, uh, you know, what was happening in terms of, of socialist gatherings, right? That Where you also had the connection to the Italian community in New York City to also understanding Um, the the interventions of the United States and Latin America and the Caribbean, right, and that all of that mattered to Jesus Colon as a Puerto Rican in New York. So how do we take the kind of particularity of certain ideas, um, of certain themes, of certain topics, right, and not isolate them, but actually show the web of relations? And so that for us, that particular text does that so beautifully and does that so magisterially in these very short little sketches? That is just—I I don't know how he did it. Um, I've since taught that text uh, in in its entirety, and students are still amazed. That's the one text that most of my students actually recommend to everyone afterwards because they felt that he could he could get at big ideas, big pictures, and yet you still felt that you that people mattered, right, and that people were part of what was happening there. And so, so that. So we were aspiring to something like what um, Jesus Colon did in that particular text. Um, and that, that became the kind of basis for the kinds of questions. And, and even this idea of, of critical dialogues, the generativeness of it, and what we thought of what sketches as being open-ended did, right? It's not that you come to a conclusion, it's that the fact is, which, you know, what, where does the conversation take us? What are the kinds of new questions that we're being pushed to consider here?
0: Wow, yeah. yeah and, and
3: also the idea of audience, just to like the final point. I mean, like the yeah. fact that we we always strive. I mean, I think in Latinx Studies, people are very aware of who your audience is. And we've always strived, whether we've been successful or not, to really reach a wide audience, not just mm-hmm. academics, but people who are just generally interested in the topics. And so I think Jesus Colón is also a model on on how mm-hmm. to do that.
0: Yeah, thank thank you all so much. This is reminding me, many that your reflection of Colon's work is reminding me of of um, you know the black feminist saying that the personal is political, and in some ways, the personal is also global. That there's so much mm-hmm. to learn from his embodied experience as a Puerto Rican in New York. And um, briefly, on page three, I'm gonna I'm gonna read another quote because I love reading quotes. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, on page three, you two write: Our central concern in critical dialogues is not simply to document or to do a genealogy of Latina, Latino, Latinx studies as an a- academic field, but to stretch its points of reference and contributions. We want to continue Jesus Colón's tradition of studying Latinx, Latina, Latino populations beyond an exclusive U.S. framework and at the intersection of Latin American, Caribbean, global, international, and transnational optics. What we articulate in this volume is an approach to Latina, Latino, Latinx studies that actively and continuously works towards a dialogue-based multi-directional analysis. And I think that is that is very much felt in, in how the dialogues are structured. Um, and I want to go now to the to dialogue numero uno, right? U.S. imperialism and colonial legacies of Latinx migration. Um, and so here, this, this, the, the first dialogue really revolves around the question, as you all say, as you all write, what can the histories and specific national, regional, and temporal communities tell us? About the shifts and modifications of U.S. colonial and imperial nation-state projects, that I'm curious, why was it so important for the uh, Numero Uno to situate the reader from this frame?
1: For us, it was just really important to start with the political and economic conditions, right, out of which the very idea or the or notion of Latino as a category emerges, or mm. uh, you know, out of which Latino studies at that time it was only latino studies but what we now call latinx studies right and so that rather than start with the categories themselves we wanted to kind of understand the broader context right and what were the situations um that we needed to consider here in order to even imagine right why why latinos even exist right as a category And then I don't know if you want to say more to that, but yeah, that that I think for us was the central kind of piece there of starting more with the historical context and understanding those kind of circumstances before entering into the categories themselves. Absolutely. And from a pedagogical position, I mean,
3: one of the things that I had noticed uh, when I began teaching at Rutgers is that students were very eager to talk about identity, but very uh, but there was a great big gap in understanding history. So basically people were willing to start talking about how the Cuban community emerged or how the Peruvian community got here. And But they had very little context on countries of origin, on U.S. foreign policy, on all the different political and economic dimensions and elements that condition this kind of migration and community building. So that is what um, this dialogue does, trying to bring together that historical piece, even before we try to get to the identity issue, which is so central and like, um, you know, it tends to be the one that students are tended to be at this for a while gravitating to. So the purpose of that of that dialogue was to just really um, foreground the political, economic and historical um, that led to those populations even being here.
0: Yeah, and, and I was, as I was reading as I was reading from from dialogue number one, I found the emphasis on space and geography to be grounding, uh, pun intended. I guess <laughs> um, that 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 land and space are vital to people's perceptions of themselves, i.e., identity formation, and that land is central to understanding why U.S. intervention was so pervasive throughout uh, Central America and and really the rest of the hemisphere. Um, right, so so in the case of Maria Elena Cepeda's article, A Cartel Boat for Love, she argues that Colombianidad continues to be a contested identity dependent on notions of Colombian regional, re- regionalism and racialized urban spaces, and how these spaces are understood locally and globally through popular culture. Uh, and and also, right, Laura Polido's piece, Geographies of Race and Ethnicity Three. Um, really argues that the reason Chicana-Chicano studies has stayed away from engaging with settler colonialism as a framework is because, quote, settler colonialism's potential to disrupt core elements of Chicana-Chicano political subjectivity. Specifically, it unsettles Chicanas and Chicanos' perceptions of themselves as colonized people by highlighting their role as colonizers. And that's on page 51. So I'm curious to hear um, from from, the, from you all's perspective about how space and place is functioning from a historical perspective and was this intentional for this dialogue and i'll note that this is very different right from from dialogue number three which we don't talk about in this episode but deals with space in a slightly different way
3: Mm -hmm. yeah i mean i think that great i I, i'm so glad that you read those uh, specific quotes i mean i think that part of um, a concern that at least i have had lately is how the term decolonial has gotten to be appropriated by literary studies in a way that I feel does a disservice um, in general for Latinx studies. Um, And I think that the way of trying to give materiality to what we mean by decolonial um, is part of the impetus for this dialogue as well. Um, How do we really refocus on the materiality? And to the Easiest, better, more direct way to get to materiality is to focus on the space, on space, right? On 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 like the fact that we are all situated, that we all have these attachments, and that those attachments go from the embodied to the foreign policy attachments. You know, and maybe foreign po- learning foreign policy is not as as cute or nice as learning about yourself, but it is something that needs to be at the forefront for any serious um, and powerful and influential and really um, for, to contribute, to really contribute to beyond, the, beyond, the, beyond academia, to just really make a contribution, not only in the intellectual life, but just in the material everyday lives um, of the communities to, of which we are a part.
1: And I just wanted to add that for us, it was really important to do that, but then to also show, right, what are the different ways and what are the different kinds of, of, of methods um, that scholars are using to do something like that? And so that, you know, to think about foreign policy, right, we, you know, we have that from a political science perspective. We have that from an ethnographic perspective, from a cultural studies perspective and from a geographer, right? And so that then it also became, okay. These are also ways that we can, all right, let's think about what we would consider kind of disciplinary approaches to it. But even within that, right, they're very interdisciplinary, but, you know, we we won't always have a conversation where we would have those people in the same room, right, or those ideas. And so that for us, it was really important to show how does cultural studies take on some of these issues of U.S. interventionism, you know, thinking about music in a music video, right? And so that, when I taught this particular critical dialogue, that's the moment where students were actually starting to think a little bit more critically, right, about popular culture. And because they had read some of the other ones and the ways in which Cepeda is is making that point, um, they realized that you, it's it's something that they can enjoy, but it's something that they can also have something uh to, to to analyze right and right. to and right. to ask different questions about.
0: Yeah, that there that there's there's a there's a tangible way to be able to take a take a song like Medellin and and think about right these global exportations of Colombianness. Um, um, yeah, and I think I think briefly, um, Lado Polido writes on page fifty two. She says ethnic Mexicans like all people of color are diverse and multifaceted, contrary to the tidiness implied by Latina Latino. And it is only through exploring the spatialities of their historical record that we can understand this avoidance, right? And I think this really sums up for me at least the, 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 the first critical dialogue because it allows us to um, uh, think expansively about settler colonialism and imperialism um, uh, across the hemisphere and and many that I think um, you talk you you naming the different disciplines that these people are coming from was like you would never see these people on a panel together right because they're because we're kind of they're all kind of siloed in different places and maybe but like this dialogue allows an imagining of a conference panel to be like what would they look like to be in conversation with each other in real time um so that that's very exciting um so we're, we're running up on time. And so I want to go to, to dialogue number two. Dialogue number two is the politics of labeling Latinidades and social movements. And I think, here this is really arguably the most talked about issue in the public arena when it comes to Latina, Latino, Latinx identity, right? Naming is so important, right? What do we call ourselves and how has that changed over time? And as I was as I was reading, I kept on thinking about you know the recently founded Smithsonian National Museum of the American Latino and how that has really sparked lots of controversy because of the name um, and so I, so I so I'm so thinking alongside the second dialogue um which the framing question here that the, that the editors have written is how do we examine Latina Latino or Latinx labeling in ways that complicate identity politics account for demographic and experiential diversity and provide effective insights into the relational and aspirational qualities of, of the lives these labels signify. Anna, can you give us can you give the listeners any insight into why these four texts work so well alongside each other?
3: Absolutely. I mean, as you just mentioned, this is probably one of those debates that is iconic or seminal to the field. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's one that in every syllabus, you probably will find a section on the labeling, right? I mean, mm-hmm. why Latina versus Latino versus Latinx versus, you know, like all these different. And whenever we even talk to people that are outside of academia, this tends to be something that has permeated the, the lives of, you know, like everyday life, even outside of, of universities. Mm-hmm. And so... Because of that centrality of that theme, theme, we wanted to sort of shake it up. And shaking it up was more difficult than with other dialogues, probably, because people had already certain familiarity, certain expectations. And so here, what I like is the fact that we have a a range of scholars, from Susan Oboler, who is credited for being one of the earlier um, Latinx scholars, to approach um, the pan-Latino versus nationality-based labeling. Um, but we also have Maricia Cardenas, who like places Central Americans in that kind of label of which they were not necessarily a part, you know, initially, um, especially when in the 70s, all these discussions about the, this pan-ethnic Hispanic label were coming about. Uh, and we also have uh, somebody like Michelle Gonzalez talking about when identities go beyond what the label captures to include... Um, you know, religion, to include the theological, to include the mestizaje ideologies, that kind of work. And of course, we have somebody like Nelly Rosario who brings in the idea of DNA and Latinx. You know, if we're talking about identity, what would happen if we add this kind of scientific trope to to get in there? You know, what does that do to these ideas of Latinx and, um, and, you know, the labeling the actual labeling so we really wanted to um, try to not overlook that that topic of labeling remains central to the field but you but really to complicate what that labeling might look like and um, and branch it out uh, without forgetting you know the historical genealogy of how these discussions have emerged but also trying to place those in a, in a greater, um, you know, like for their cultural resonance, not only for their genealogy. So that's what that dialogue
1: um, was there for. Um, Yeah. I I also wanted to add that um, for us, it was really important. And not, I, I don't know that if we achieved it in every dialogue, but in most of them, we also tried to get senior scholars to revisit their work. And to think about the shifts and changes. And so that for us, it was really important to open this dialogue with Suzanne Oberler and not just do a kind of cut and paste of ethnic labels, Latino lives, right, for this section, but for her to re-engage that work and to think about uh, what's happened that's different, right? So, you know, we have a moment where the historically available category seemed limited to Hispanic Latino, and that was the debate to now her really thinking about the Mexicanization, right? Of what we think of as Latinidad. And so asking those questions and thinking about what has shifts, what has shifted historically? um, You know, what are the debates that are happening now? What is it that people are actually concerned about? Um, And so it, it it was important to have that, but then also ask the questions of, okay, but who else is involved in this conversation that we haven't heard from? Before and so I think that how Anna kind of then teased out the rest of of the people it, who are part of this of this dialogue, right? Really fills that out.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that about about asking senior scholars to revisit their work—it's it, so refreshing too. Because oftentimes when we write something. Um, and the reason why so many people may be paralyzed by writing is that you feel that you've committed forever, right? Like you feel that what you said is what you're going to believe forever, like 50 years down the road. Or, And just the the opportunity of having um, a more senior scholar reflect on her own evolution and her own journey and her own way of thinking through these topics, so I think is just very refreshing.
0: Yeah, I, I think one thing that I found really great about the second dialogue from an editorial standpoint is the ordering of the text I thought was done really well as I read them, you know, from, from Suzanne's to um, Nellie's text. I just, I found myself digging my, like digging a deeper, and deeper, like, like um, engagement with this conversation. Right. So, so at the beginning, Suzanne, she said, she writes on page 69, she says, I explore the idea that roughly 40 years after the ethnic label Hispanic was coined, it is being replaced by the use of a new label, Mexican. This trend, I argue, represents a new paradoxical racializing homogenization, a new linguistic formation that defines all Latinx peoples, regardless of citizenship status, as foreign, as quote unquote illegal, at the societal and official levels, making them primarily as uh, marking them rather primarily as strangers in the United States. End quote. So going from Suzanne's work which she's revisiting right from from her earlier work to um to the work of of Maritza and how and how specifically queer Central American diasporic artists and writers are conceptualizing their own identity through through the internet, right? Through their own writing. And then and then you move on to um as you as you mentioned Anna Michelle's work and then Nelly's work which is really uh a, an experimental kind of text that I found myself completely transfixed by. That I, I that I, I keep. I write. I was writing here um, that um, that 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 Nelly's work seeks a deeper meaning of identity by bringing together scientific inquiry of genetic makeup and the humanistic literature of race and race making to produce an experimental but exciting critique of how DNA can be used to hurt and heal Latinx communities. So I found the trajectory from Susan's, from Susan's piece um, to Nellie's piece like quite phenomenal. And that, this ended up being one of my favorite dialogues. So I thank you all so much for organizing them in this way. <laughs> yeah, cool. Um, so we're going to skip a bit ahead to dialogue number eight, Latinx kinship and relatedness. And so by focusing on race relations between Latinidad and Blackness in the work of Jennifer A. Jones, Femme Latina Chonga Aesthetics in Collective Cultural Practices as explored by Gillian Hernandez, Church Life and Like in Migratory uh, Labor uh, labor camps in the work of Lloyd Barba, and the process of collective mourning in the wake of natural disasters in Puerto Rico by Francis A. Aparicio, right? Dialogue number eight shows how various Latinx populations come together across time and space. Um and so one thing that I, was, that I was focusing on a lot here was in the case of Jillian, Lloyd, and Francis's work, they were writing about strong relatedness that already exists, right? Uh, and Jennifer was instead writing about, uh, writing rather against an entire history of mestizaje and la finidad in proximity to whiteness, and instead asking, so this is Jennifer's voice, she, uh, she writes what would it mean to think of Latinidad as proximate to and or inclusive of Blackness, end quote, and that's on page 425. Um, And so I'm curious to hear about, um, um, uh, Merida, your thoughts about these four articles in relation to each other, especially when it comes to current and future possibilities of kinship and relatedness.
1: Well, I think, you know, again, what we were trying to do is ask that question from distinct vantage points, right? And that what what uh, Jennifer's piece is actually really trying to think about is kind of reframing the question that when we think about political organizing and solidarity and how we've studied them in the past where we haven't always taken race into account or or centralized race right so it might be where we talk about people of color uh, but we're not really talking about okay what does that mean in terms of specific populations how people present how they understand who they are right and so that by shifting to the vantage point and actually making central blackness right she's now trying to think about what does this mean in the south right if we're going back to geography among amongst Mexican, migrants, right? Some of them from, uh, from I think it's Costa Chica, right, that present as Black also, and how do they come to understand Blackness in the context of the United States? And then also just a plug for her larger project, what does that then mean when they go back to Mexico, right? And then how they wind up understanding Blackness in, in Mexico, right? And so, but what does that do then in terms of how are they thinking about what, what kinds of political connections, what kinds of political organizing they can participate in. And so she's also asking this question of minority-linked fate, right? So what is what does that look like when you see your fates tied to one another, um, as opposed to always aspiring kind of towards citizenship and as, in citizenship as also the kind of means to, to whiteness? What happens when you're actually organizing and thinking about that within the realm of, of blackness, right? Um, at least that's how I'm understanding her particular piece. But then we also have, you know, so from a political, from what we, from what we could k- kind of think of as a quote unquote, just poli- purely political kind of context or political organizing context to then think about, you know, the, the work of, of someone like Julian Hernandez, where she's really thinking about kind of art and, and, and uh, how, how, People present in terms of, you know, if we think about the, the the makeup that was being used and how that got reflected, also in terms of the art that was being produced and how femininity um, gets expressed, right? I think that that became a different way of of asking those questions. To then turn to someone like Lord like Lloyd Barba, who I do want to plug his book just came out, Sewing the Sacred. Uh, so uh, Adam, yeah, it for looks phenomenal. Yeah, which looks yeah. phenomenal. Um, Uh, But, you know, his work in really thinking about families in the church. And I do want to say, I mean, before we move on, we were very intentional about trying to bring religion into this conversation um, of the of the text, of the collected um, of the collection um, as a whole. Just because we feel that that's not always kind of taken into account. Right. And so that each one you might find an element where we really are thinking about. You know, in what ways does religion matter in this context? And you know, if we think about religion and the in the context of what family means in terms of Pentecostalism, that's one of the things that he's trying to get at, in, and 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 its relationship to labor, right? And what that meant in terms of migrant families. Um, and then lastly, you know, here's the context where you know we kind of talked about how Suzanne Obler returns to one of you know her foundational. Work and we actually end this particular dialogue with Francis Aparicio, who's really in this piece. She's also really rethinking her own relationship as someone who became a diasporic Puerto Rican to Puerto Rico on the island, right, because of what happened in terms of Hurricane Maria, but then also all of the things that happened right after afterward. Um, and so that in her reflection, it's really her piece saying goodbye to, I think, her work, her her position in the academy. Um, This is, she wrote this as she was retiring. Um, and she was also just thinking about the kinds of questions that she's going to continue to ask as she's writing this next book on Mark Anthony, right? And so that while Mark Anthony, the song Aguanila doesn't come up in this particular piece, um, right, elements of what it was that she was thinking through in terms of of salsa music, right? The the role of music and healing through a short story um, became really important um, for for her in this context as she's kind of moving towards you know where she's going next.
3: Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and I think that another, I mean, like this section in particular, what I what I one of the things that I loved about it was how each one of the collaborators. Is able to show something with language that it's so difficult to describe generally. Like I'm thinking of the um activity, um, like Gillian's work, for instance. I mean, the fact that oftentimes we tend to fall back into descriptions that are very sociological, but they're not teased out. So, so you know, so we can say Afro Latino, or we can say White Puerto Rican. You know, we can we can put the same labels that sociology has already uh, put together in a way that, that is just like, they're just there um, and intend them to do something different. And that rarely happens that way. I think, I mean, I think that approaching this with that other level of creativity allows us to get to, Oh yeah, I, I know who she talk who she's talking about. I, I see those young women. I know who they are. I, I can see why that might be, associated with race or class or, you know, and and it's a way that is more energetic. Like, I feel like the energy is there rather than when we just hear, you know, just reconfiguration of the same terms and you just like take them for granted. It's like, okay, so yeah, so they mean this. But um, so I really like that sense of uh, creativity in approaching these identities and this even these racialization practices. Beyond um, the very traditional sociological um, in you know intent like usually what it is so so I really that's one of the things that I really felt that came out in every single one of those um, texts from that from that section from in different ways
0: right yeah and I, I I had this is the 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 article that I thought I had the most personal connection to because um, the 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 video Chongalicious that Jillian references in her work was a kind of, was very much a cultural touchstone for my own like high school career. Like I remember that video circulating in my high school and everyone being so excited, but also a little bit kind of off-putting. And I think that this article really gave me the understanding as to why, right? Those two things can exist. And then also in Lloyd's piece, my, my family is also Pentecostal migrant laborers. And so I, I was very much invested in these pieces as like telling me something about myself. <laughs> so that was yeah. exciting. Um, yeah, and it's,
3: but... it's great also that a lot of times there has been this very um, just limited way of viewing religion only mm. in terms that the white gays like. So the white mm-hmm. gays love like Santeria. They love, you know, like they love, right, guru. Right. they love, you know. And so that's what we learn about, which is super hugely important, especially when it's done from a different gaze. But uh, but also, you know, these other religions that play a part in people's lives, you know, we know we're less about. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I think back to this idea that religion is really pervasive in in all of our lives, especially when it comes to like imperialism and colonialism and settler colonialism, like religion had a lot to do with it. So I think I like that there's so much of it in in, in the reader. Um, but to, to kind of wrap up the, the dialogue. So dialogue number nine community engagement, critical methodologies, and social justice um, offers a variety of methodologies that are central for Latinx studies, right? So you have autoethnography as utilized by Salvador in his piece on being a white person of color. Um, you have uh, Buru Hexing as depicted in Aisha's work. You have Latinx community academic praxis and testimonial in the case of Mari and Joseph's article. And you have accompaniment, right, and the physical space of the classroom in the case of Lorja's text. And so um, in this dialogue, I was really latched on to specifically Lorja's and Aisha's uh, texts, right? So Lorja is writing Bridging Activism and Teaching, and Aisha's writing Bruhex and Afro-Latinx Queer Jester. And they both write about post-election actions by students in classrooms and Afro-Latinx Bruhexes. And so... These readings really show how the election of Donald Trump was a call to action for progressive and radical folks who were oriented and who had always been oriented towards social justice. And so what I found so gripping was how in this moment, feeling was what mobilized action, right? Lorja recalls holding class the day after the election and students were sad, they were fearful, they were hurting. Similarly, um, Aisha recounts how Hector Lewok, one of the Brujaks, is interviewed, was angry, right? So much so that Hector turned to the writings of a black radical feminist, Audre Lorde, um, to say like, quote, uh, how they drew on Lorde as a spiritual guide to channel anger into warfare. And so I'm interested to hear Ana, your take on on, uh, how you understand the role of emotion and feeling as a vehicle towards action, community engagement and social justice with respect to the readings in this anthology.
3: Hi, abs- Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I mean, and this is probably true throughout, um, but especially in this section, we wanted to accomplish a number of things. First, to bring the emotional the and the affective specifically for all its political power, right? I mean, like it, it's something that unfortunately, whenever um, studies of Latinx populations have focused on the emotions. It's always been from a very pathological way, in a very pathological way, as either, you know, Latinos are just like the, you know, singing and Carmen Miranda dancing happy people, or they are just flattened uh, with the language of psychology. Um, And that has been the social science has a reputation and like a history of doing that. And yet we have forgotten uh, why and how affect really is behind most of the mobilization and community engagement that we ever practice, and how to really use that, you know, to to connect and to really yield this kind of mobilization. And so we wanted to make sure that that was there, that we understood that affect has a political power, uh, but also that that politics without affect, like really have no 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 place, right? No, no place of existing. And in addition to that, I think here we also wanted to foreground the methodological diversity of our field um, and how uh, we have come to see um, self-positioning as a very important uh, epistemological um, tendency of Latinx studies, but also like the collective, you know, how do we do collaborative work? How do we do uh, work that brings our own interlocutors into the process of knowledge making? Um, how can we use the classroom for all these kinds of practices? And um, and I feel that that is something that comes in different ways from each one of these ways. I mean, like and and there from each kind of these authors, uh, from Salvador's piece on the self positioning of you know himself as a faculty member in a classroom, uh, Lorgias experience also with uh, Donald Trump, but also like in terms of politics that are more immediate in terms of academic politics. So, you know, both, you know, and, and also how those layers of politics are never independent of one another right like if we're going to study the academic politics we have to put them in the context of greater political landscapes and so so this is a back and forth in my view of like from scale so it's like the back and forth from the the body scale to the national politics scale to the classroom scale you know and that back and forth is something that this particular dialogue really was um intending to do um and and, and and I and I like that this dialogue also had a very strong pedagogical reflection because I feel that Latinx studies is a field that, you know, we can say that philosophy and English began in within the university and it was like the pillars of this very classic model of university, but Latinx studies really began about it was about teaching and it was always about teaching. It began by students. I mean, these are these are fields and and um that really were Student generated. Um, And students demanded that these fields existed in universities. So it's very much from the ground up. And we wanted to honor that. And I think that that's also part of what this is intending to do. The fact that, you know, we are, yes, we are scholars, yes, we are researchers, but that research is made greater and um, more generative precisely by being in the classroom. And so um, I think that. Our our colleagues in that um, in that dialogue really show that, and it's very um, just very inspirational. I found that section to be really um, inspirational, despite the obvious um, you know there's still work to do. But I felt that it was just bringing it all together.
1: And I just want to add one thing because I know we're probably running short on time, but I think the other element of this, going back to how Anna ended, right, her her comments is the fact that um, students also wanted connections to the communities that they came from, right? So that it wasn't about kind of leaving communities behind in order for you to do this kind of academic work and you know, and, and feel that the curriculum right, reflected who they were and things like that, but that they also wanted something that they could bring back to communities. They wanted also to think about what's the knowledge that's being produced out of communities themselves right? And so that, that's why that first, that first um, dialogo by, by Mari Castaneda and Joseph Kropczynski, right, is really kind of bringing us back to what are the kinds of community um, and, and, and uh, institutional kind of college institutional collaborations that can happen, right? Um, you know, what kinds, you know, how, how is it that students can see themselves as part of also multiple communities? So in each one, you get this idea of, you know, what students learn about who they are, about the communities that they belong to, but then that they're also part of multiple communities. And so you see that in each of these pieces or that multiple communities exist, right? And that they could be a part of. Um, And that was something that I really appreciated there. So that it's not just about kind of the, the, the individual feeling kind of fulfilled because they're learning something, but the action component of it. But then also, how are we tied to other people? Um, right. Which goes back to the comments that we made early on about Jesus Colon, right? And so I think for us it was really how do we bring that full circle here?
0: Yeah, I, I, I thank you for that, Marina. I love I loved that. And in, and so the the two final pieces of the anthology focus on self reflexivity and spiritual work as critical methods towards liberation. And I found that that that. Um, that was so important because you even you all even write about reflexivity in your introduction. So on page six, when you're when you two are talking about the collaboration efforts of the authors, you write, quote, this is important to mention because we align our scholarship with the ethnographic convention of reflexivity from an anti-colonial slash decolonial and anti-racist stance grounded in history and political economy. We draw on rigorous reflexivity to rupture prevailing categories and modes of analysis, end quote. And again, this is on page six. And so it's even in the formulation of critical dialogues in Latinx studies, um, it in itself is, a ref- is, is is vitally like re- reflexivity is vital to the formulation of this book, right? Which which then speaks to where and how uh, Latinx studies is going. And so I just wanna thank you all so much for that. I think that is uh, incredible. And, and really bringing these dialogues together was a skill um, and you all are very skillful. Thank <laughs> you. Um, so as we start to wrap up the conversation, I have one more question for you all, which is simply, what are your hopes for the reader? How do you hope it circulates? How do you hope it's taught? And and how do you hope scholars take it up in their own research?
3: Hmm. I think for me, I mean, they. I've had, already like a few moments in which this um, volume has brought some of us together. I mean, I remember giving a, a copy to somebody who's the the dean of the of the cultural center, the Latinx Cultural Center at Yale, Eileen Galvez, and she's Salvadorian. And I remember that she's always mentioned how she felt that except for, you know, for a few exceptions, um, she felt that Salvadorians have remained outside of this Latinx um, discussion. And I remember like writing a little thing on the front of the book in the first page saying, you know, I hope that you find yourself like, you know, there's some stuff that you might like here. And and um, and when she and she was just really moved by that. And at the same time, she approached a graduate student with Salvadorian and like mentioned this to her. And we had this like Three or four people kind of gathering, very informal, um, just in the hallway type of thing. And it was just such a moment of like, of learning completely spontaneous. And I, and I hope that um, in addition to having the more traditional ways of like using it in the classroom or maybe even in some kind of um, community center discussion or something like that, I hope that there's always that there's also that possibility of, um, of just bringing people together to just, you know, just to, to share what they what the volume meant to them. Um, so I think that if anything like that, if more things like that happen, I'd be happy mm-hmm. with um, with the
1: outcome of it. Yeah. No, I I, I completely agree. Um, and I do also want to add that um, you know, in terms of it being taught in the classroom, I have just been so happy when colleagues email me or call me to kind of tell me that they used it in the classroom and how they used it, right? And what what kinds of conversations they were having with students. And so one example that I want to kind of bring up is Arlene Torres taught the book at Hunter College. So to have probably the person who's the reason why I'm in the academy, because as a graduate student, she encouraged me and told me that I should think about graduate school for her then to turn around and teach this book and tell me that she really tried to she really tried to teach it with with the with the kind of prologues in in place and thinking about the questions that we asked and then also um, having the students read the pieces and and asking them to, to really reflect on the questions and why we decided to to construct the book the way that we did um, also for me r- reminded me right that we're always learning from each other and that that this particular text is also one that is about intergenerational collaborations, right? And that, you know, what are the ways that we continue to kind of hold those conversations um, and continue to learn from one another over and over again? And so um, that that is one of the things that I've really loved about this project and then, I'd love to hear when when you know the parts that work, and 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 I'm you know also excited to hear about the parts that probably you're hearing from people about the parts that maybe are not working, um for for us to kind of continue to think about okay what would what would a next project look like then?
3: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, it would be it's it you know, and even even just getting to know a little bit each one of the collaborators. Some of them we knew we know very well, and they're. Our friends or immediate colleagues, but also like getting to know people that maybe we've read their work, but not really know them and, and being part of that process was really neat. So hopefully that's also something that people will notice that kind of, um, yeah, intergenerational, especially, but also interinstitutional and
1: mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I love how this is again making another kind of full circle about you know starting off with your bios about how you were inspired by these people, and now they're teaching your books in their classes, right? And I and I think that's that's really beautiful. Um, well, we've we've come to our time to the end of our time, and Ana Merida, I want to thank you all so much for lending our listeners uh, your time and for for writing critical dialogues in Latinx studies.
3: Thank you for convening this, Jonathan. It's really, um, I really appreciate the the chance of, of talking about the book and I really uh, appreciate your invitation.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And, and I always enjoy having a conversation with Anna about this and, and now with you too. So yes, thank you.
0: All right, thank you all so much. Take care. Okay, Bye. bye-bye.